Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Again, um, thanks to Plan for hosting today's webinar. My name is Dana Casserly, and I'm a supervising attorney with the Pennsylvania Health Law Project, and I'm going to be presenting today's webinar. Um, Kelly just mentioned the chat feature. We're going to take questions at the very end of the presentation today to make sure that we can get through all of the substantive material that we need to get to in the one-hour session. So if for some reason we're not able to get to all questions, please feel free to reach out to me uh, or call our helpline. All of the appropriate contact information is going to be on the last slide. So first, a bit about my organization. Again, we're the Pennsylvania Health Law Project, and we're a statewide nonprofit legal services group that helps individuals who are having trouble accessing publicly funded healthcare coverage and services. So that means mostly Medicaid. All of our services are free. Um, there's no income limit to qualify for our services here at PHLP, and we serve clients from all counties in Pennsylvania, so we're statewide. And we do that mainly through telephone work. That's how we reach all of the counties here in the state. In addition to the direct client work that we do, we also provide technical assistance to uh, staff from the other plan organizations or social workers from hospitals or doctor's offices, other folks who are trying to help individuals get services or get coverage under Medicaid. And finally, we do policy advocacy, mainly at the state level. We do some community education, like we're doing today, and we publish monthly newsletters and some other publications on substantive topics. So quick look at where we're going today with the presentation. We're going to be talking about Medicaid with a specific focus on Medicaid for children. Our goal is to provide advocates with a real basic overview of the Medicaid program, what it is, um, and the legal underpinnings that make it so important for kids in our state. And then we're going to get into a discussion about the Medicaid eligibility rules that are applicable to kids, how to apply for coverage, and at the end we're going to have a conversation about what to do if your client has been denied coverage under Medicaid or denied a service once they already have Medicaid. Um, so that'll be the discussion of the notice requirements and the appeal rights. Today really is meant to be a very broad strokes overview of what is a complex and dense topic. So again, we're going to do our absolute best to put that all into one hour. Uh, we could probably talk about this subject for a whole day. I could definitely do that. Some terminology and acronyms you're going to hear me use. I'm not going to go through these in list form right now, but I had to note these here. I do my best to try to spell out what I'm talking about, but I don't think it would be a public benefits training without some acronyms thrown in there. Um, so you can reference back to this slide if you need um, if you need to know what I'm talking about if I use an acronym that you're not familiar with. So let's get right in, <clears throat> excuse me, right into the subject matter today. So starting at the overview. Pennsylvania's Medicaid program is known as Medical Assistance, or MA. So you'll hear me use Medicaid and Medical Assistance, or MA, interchangeably today. It's administered by our State Department of Human Services, which is formerly known as the Department of Public Welfare. And it's run in conjunction or in partnership with the Federal Medicaid Agency, which is known as CMS. 
Medicaid is a free publicly funded health care, health insurance program, excuse me, for children who are from low-income families or for children with disabilities, even if they have higher family incomes. Medicaid, of course, covers other, um, other people, not just children, but again, today our focus will be kids. Medicaid charges no co-pays for services for children, and there is no monthly premium to be paid. So it is, again, entirely free to kids. Under the EPSPT component of Medicaid, which we'll get into more in a moment, there's a very broad range of services that are covered under Medicaid. Um, so not only is it free, and not only is it widely available, it is also wonderful coverage, and we'll talk about why. So EPSDT stands for the Early and Periodic Screening, Diagnosis, and Treatment Program. EPSDT is the children's health component of federal Medicaid law, essentially. What it says is that the state Medicaid programs, including ours right here in Pennsylvania, must cover all services and treatments that are medically necessary to correct or ameliorate a child's condition. So it requires early screening, detection, and attention to problems through proper treatment. When we say that a service is going to correct or ameliorate, this really means anything that's either going to improve or maintain the child's health in the best condition possible, to compensate for a health problem or prevent it from worsening, or prevent the development of additional health problems that might occur if the underlying condition goes untreated. <clears throat> so this is really a recognition of the ongoing health needs of children with disabilities, and especially the need to prevent children from low-income families, whether healthy or living with a disability, from having any conditions go undetected due to lack of access to care, um, and then those problems turning into something worse later on in life. So besides covering services that'll co that will correct or ameliorate, the other important component of EPSDT um, and Medicaid for Kids is medical necessity. So I mentioned that medical assistance is required to cover all medically necessary services. Medical necessity is not defined in federal law, but Pennsylvania regulations define it, and it does a, Pennsylvania does a really good job. Um, it's sort of a model definition, and it really does reflect the federal standard um, of EPSDT and what needs to be covered. So the definition is here on the slide. Um, <clears throat> in order to show that a service is medically necessary, you just have to meet one of these three components. So is it going to prevent the onset of an illness, condition, or disability? Is it going to reduce or ameliorate the physical, mental, or developmental effects of the child's condition? Or is it going to help the child to achieve or maintain maximum functional capacity in performing their daily activities? So that's things like bathing and toileting and eating and putting on clothing. Um, essentially here what we're talking about is um, services for kids when we're trying to prove that a service is medically necessary, once the kid has got the insurance card, we just need to meet one of these three prongs, and that's really our battleground for the appeal. An example that illustrates medical necessity is feeding therapy. So let's say a doctor prescribes feeding therapy for a child. We argue that it's medically necessary because it meets prong three. 
feeding therapy is going to help this child achieve functional capacity or maintain functional capacity in performing the daily activity of eating. It's also very likely going to meet both prong one and prong two because the feeding therapy is going to help the child avoid worsening conditions so they don't eat. They might aspirate when they eat. That can cause further complications. It will reduce and ameliorate the feeding problem that's detected. So failure to thrive, um, it's going to address those kinds of things, acid reflux or GERD, anything like that. <clears throat> so that's really sort of a micro example um, of what is a very broad definition, the easiest way to understand medical necessities to apply it to a certain uh, service that you're trying to obtain for a child. So what does EPSDT and medical necessity mean for our kids? The reason I just spent time going through those legal underpinnings is because we want to first answer the, the why before we get into the how. So that the how is the eligibility rule, the mechanics, we're going to go through that now in a moment. But knowing about EPSDT and medical necessity really under, helps us understand how vitally important the Medicaid program is for children, for all children whether they are living with a disability or if they're a healthy child that is typically developing. Because of the protections of EPSDT, in most cases, Medicaid offers the best insurance package that a child can have in terms of benefits covered. It covers services that are rarely covered by private insurance, and it covers those services without any caps or lifetime limits or co-pays, as I mentioned. So it's going to cover some of the more typical things, sick and well visits, immunizations, prescriptions, um, eyeglasses, vision and hearing testing, but it really starts to go beyond what private insurance typically covers when you see coverage for things like behavioral health therapies or inpatient residential treatment for a child, in-home nursing care or home health aid care for a child on a shift basis, um, <clears throat> orthodontia, durable medical equipment like power wheelchairs. This is not, of course, an exhaustive list, but these are the examples where you really see Medicaid go far beyond what private insurance will typically cover. Kids can have Medicaid in addition to other insurance, so they can have Medicaid secondary to insurance through their parents' work, for example. Um, you don't have to be uninsured in order to go on Medicaid. For a child that has two insurances, Medicaid is going to be the payer of last resort or the secondary insurance, and it's going to pick up any cost sharing or amount that's left over by the primary insurance. Or for those um, more involved services I just mentioned, it's going to pay full, full freight for that stuff that primary insurance really doesn't cover at all. I can say, you know, out of the hundreds and hundreds of home health cases that I've worked on, um, private duty nursing and home health aid services for kids, of all the kids I've had with primary insurance, maybe one or two has ever told me that their primary or private insurance actually covers that service. So if you're thinking about a child who has cerebral palsy, for example, and they need one-to-one -one private duty nursing throughout the day to be able to remain at home with their family, Medicaid is the payer for that service. Uh, private companies are not paying for that service. Later, we're gonna talk about another important legal underpinning of the Medicaid program, which is the due process standard. And that's going to add more uh, fuel to our fire to explain the why of Medicaid, why it's so important for our kids. Um, so for now, let's talk about... Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Before you begin on part two, for the attorneys that are participating, 
I'm going to launch the first of the CLE credit polls right now. Should be on your screen if you can just respond yes or no if you're paying attention. <laughs> and um, then I can prove to the CLE board that you're paying attention and grant the credit. So thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Um, okay. Want to make sure I get my CLE credit too. <laughs> um, so eligibility. Let's talk about the the categories and how to qualify for Medicaid for a child. So for anyone applying for Medicaid or medical assistance, there are really three threshold questions that we ask. Um, in no particular order, you really need to look at all three of these. Um, first is, does a child fit into a particular category of Medicaid eligibility? So are they low income? Do they have a disability? Those are really the two broad umbrellas of Medicaid categories for kids. And we're going to go through each category in detail in a moment. It's not going to be exhaustive, so we're not going to give time to talk about some of the automatic coverage categories, like kids who are in um, foster care or leaving foster care, um, adoption, people who are receiving adoption assistance, those kids are automatically getting Medicaid. Um, and truthfully, we don't see many problems with their eligibility in terms of advocacy needed. So once you've figured out what category the child might fit into, you have to then look at what is their household income and does it meet the applicable limit for that category. Very importantly, there is no resource or asset test for kids applying for Medicaid for any category. So that means resources, their money in the bank, um, anything that would be a resource that's countable to an adult. Kids have no resource test whatsoever if they're under 21 is the cutoff there. <clears throat> the second prong of the analysis is Pennsylvania state residency. So the child who's applying has to be a resident of our state. And that residency question is relatively straightforward. You have to be physically present in the state and intend to stay here. There's no minimum period of time required to establish residency, and you don't have to have a fixed or permanent address to apply for Medicaid. You just have to have somewhere where you can get your mail. So if you have a client who doesn't have a permanent address, if you have a homeless client, they are not uh, prevented from applying or receiving Medicaid. Uh, they can use the address of a friend, a family member, a social service agency. Um, here in, in Philadelphia, I have some clients who get their mail at Broad Street Ministry. They're considered Philadelphia residents, they live here, um, but that's where they're getting their mail because um, they don't have a permanent address or they are homeless. And last but not least, the threshold question we ask is about immigration status. So a child has to have an appropriate status in order to qualify for full federally funded Medicaid. In Pennsylvania, children under 21 and pregnant women for that matter, need to only be lawfully present in order to get the full Medicaid coverage. In other words, in order to meet the immigration status requirement. Children under 21 do not need to meet the more stringent qualified immigration status that's required for most adults, anyone who, any adult that's not pregnant. And for kids, there's no five-year bar, so there's no waiting period to um, qualify for Medicaid the way there are for other um, means-tested benefits for adults, for certain adults. So that is all I'm going to say about immigration status in the interest of time. Um, again, immigration could 
public benefits for immigrants could be an entire training on its own. If you have questions about immigration status and how it relates to Medicaid, I've put some resources here on the slide. I also encourage you to check out the webinar that was given last year and I believe the year before by CLS and Community Justice Project on this topic. And of course, you can reach out to us if you have specific questions or a situation that you're trying to address for a client. So let's talk about those categories I mentioned, starting with SSI. This is sort of a quasi category, and the reason is it's automatic. So any individual that's receiving supplemental security income or SSI is automatically qualified for Medicaid in Pennsylvania. That's not the case in all states, but it is here in Pennsylvania. So for these kids, no separate application is needed for medical assistance. That child is going to get the SSI um, monetary benefit each month, the cash benefit, and they're going to have the Medicaid insurance card. Um, and again, no application is needed. That child has to be found disabled according to Social Security, of course, um, meeting the childhood disability standard, and their family has to meet the income and resource limits for SSI. So we're talking about families with very limited means. Uh, PHLP, does not work on SSI cases. I certainly do not have expertise on SSI. For our purposes, though, this is relevant because we do often see cases where a child is turning 18 and they are losing SSI, um, or even before age 18, they're, re they're reviewed and found no longer disabled, um, and that impacts their medical assistance eligibility. So if that happens, they should appeal the SSI denial, of course, um, and in the meantime, they should appeal the Medicaid determination if they get one. If they get a determination from Medicaid saying, because you're losing SSI, you no longer qualify for Medicaid, um, they should appeal that. We're going to talk later about appeals. Um, in the meantime, though, they should be reviewed for other categories at the county level. So the first sort of true category is MAGI, and that stands for modified adjusted gross income. And this category of Medicaid was created after the Affordable Care Act. MAGI uses tax law to determine household size and income for the purpose of qualifying for Medicaid. So really this is new landscape for public benefits advocates. Looking at tax rules um, was not part of eligibility work prior to MAGI. Um, and still there are, this is the only time we're really looking at tax law when we're talking about Medicaid eligibility. And in the case of a child from a lower-income family who is trying to get medical assistance under the MAGI category. So as with all Medicaid coverage, you have to meet the household size and income limits for the category. So de de determining household size for MAGI, again, is based on tax rules. The basic rule is that the MAGI household is going to include all individuals that are claimed as exemptions on the, tax, on the federal tax return. So a common example is a child who's claimed as a dependent on their parents' taxes. Their household is going to include the child themselves, the tax filer or filers who claim them, so the two parents, and then any other claimed dependents of the tax filer. So let's say it's a child with one sibling who's claimed as a dependent by two parents. The household's going to be size four for MAGI. <clears throat> MAGI income um, tax rules also dictate what income counts, how much of it counts, 
Um, so in a nutshell, taxable income counts for the MAGI calculation. But in addition to just what's taxable, the MAGI rules for Medicaid also consider three other sources of income that are not taxable. So non-taxable social security benefit, tax-exempt interest, and excluded foreign income. All three of those count for MAGI even though they're not taxable under IRS rules. The um, second two, non-taxable interest and excluded foreign income, are generally not something that we see among our client base often. But of course, social security benefits are more common for our clients. So besides those three that are um, included in MAGI, even though not taxable, to determine whether a type of income is taxable, thus included in MAGI, you want to consult with IRS guidance, such as the publication 525, which I've linked here on the slide, um, and basically remember that if it's taxable, it counts for MAGI. If it's not taxable, it doesn't count, but for those three exceptions. And generally, the rule is that unless something is specifically excluded by the IRS, all income is taxable. So that's sort of a starting point to frame your analysis. Some common types of income that are counted for MAGI, of course, wages and tips, unemployment compensation, social security benefits I just mentioned, pensions, dividends and interest, alimony, and any rents and royalties. Some types of income are not counted for MAGI, and these come up frequently. Child support does not count for MAGI. Workers' compensation does not count. TANF doesn't count. SSI, veterans' benefits, scholarship income, student loan interest, or any gifts and inheritances do not count. So they have to meet, of course, the gift and inheritance rules under the IRS. One final note about MAGI, um, for infants under the age of one, if a baby is born to a mother who was on medical assistance at the time of delivery, that baby is automatically going to be eligible under MAGI from the, from the baby's birth until their first birthday, so long as they continue to reside with the mother and regardless of changes in income during that year. At the age of one, the child will be re-reviewed for ongoing eligibility under other categories. So that's a similar arrangement to what happens when someone on SSI turns 18. They have to then be reviewed for other categories of Medicaid, assuming they don't continue to qualify for SSI as an adult. So here are the MAGI income limits, just to give you an idea of the level of income that we're talking about. Um, and again, some of these are higher than the legal aid limits for qualifying for services. So keep the health law project in mind if you have a client that comes in looking for help and they're over income. My organization does not have an income limit to qualify for our services. You can always refer them to us for help with their insurance. The next category of Medicaid eligibility is called PH95. And this is a category for children with disabilities. And it really captures those kids who have complex healthcare needs or disabilities that would otherwise meet the Social Security standard, uh, but they're not eligible for SSI because of their parents' income or assets being too high. So the parental income and assets count for SSI, I mentioned before, until the child's 18th birthday. But for medical assistance, parental income does not count for a child who is applying under PH95 due to a disability. Um, and again, resources never count, so that's not part of the equation. 
so that's really huge. Um, if you think of a middle-class family of four, you know, making, let's say, $45,000 a year, and they have a four-year-old with a very complex seizure disorder, that child is going to be ineligible for MAGI, which we just talked about, because their income for a family of four and their age group is just a little bit over the limit. But think about caring for that child with complex medical needs on an annual income of 45000 Those services get very expensive between premiums and co-pays and services that are simply not covered at all to meet the child's needs. Um, that would really be devastating for the child. So here's where PH95 comes in. It's in recognition of this exact situation that Pennsylvania allows kids to qualify under PH95 without regard to their parents' income. To qualify for PH95, again, the child's disability or medical condition has to meet the Social Security standard that applies to children, which is also known as the Childhood Listing of Impairments, and I've linked to it on the slide here. Um, the child doesn't have to be receiving SSI, they just mirror that standard when they do the medical review at the county assistance office as part of the application. So documentation of the disability is, is key here. Um, as much documentation as the family can provide with the application, the better. Anything from anyone who's evaluated the child, so doctor's visits, letters from a doctor supporting the application, uh, evaluations from a physical therapist, occupational therapist or speech, IEP from the school, anything like that. It's really broad. Um, the focus is really on how the child's condition impacts their functional capacity um, appropriate for their age group. A quick note about income here. Some income of the child does count. So the child's own income needs to be below $1,041 per month in 2019. Um, and that reflects 100% of the federal poverty level. There are two main kinds of income that count against the child in this context. Interest or dividends on bank accounts or stocks, bonds, or any other CDs or investments that, they, that are in the child's name and reported to the IRS under the child's social security number. That's a little less common. The second type of income that counts for a child for PH95 um, is earnings from the child's job. Only about half of the earnings are going to count towards the eligibility limit, so only about half will count towards that 1041 per month, um, but, it, but the income does count. But keep in mind that if a child is earning enough to be over the income limit for PH95, it's likely that they might not meet the disability standard anyway. So much more to be said about PH95. Um, one note, oftentimes the county fails to review for PH95 um, and they just issue a denial based on income. So that's something to be on the lookout for. Um, that's, a, that's a common situation that we see. The Children's Health Insurance Program is sort of the catch-all after Medicaid. So it covers kids who are under the age of 19 who are uninsured and who don't qualify for Medicaid either because their income is too high or because they don't qualify under PH95. CHIP uses the MAGI income counting rules, and the limit, again, is going to be based on the child's age and household size. So the chart here that I've hyperlinked to is much more detailed, um, but I've listed here just to give you an idea of where the, the lines are drawn for CHIP versus medical assistance. Um, you can have free CHIP for up to 213% of the federal poverty level, 
The next level is subsidized, also called low-cost CHIP, and that goes up to 319% of the federal poverty level. And then at-cost CHIP, which means full, you're paying full price. That's for anyone above 319% of the federal poverty level. Takeaways here for our clients, there is no wrong door. So you can apply for Medicaid first. We, we usually encourage clients to do it that way. And if Medicaid says they're not eligible, the application will automatically be sent over to CHIP for review um, with no break, not having to start over. It's just reviewed it for CHIP. Um, same goes the other way. If someone applies for CHIP and they appear to be Medicaid eligible, CHIP will boot them over to Medicaid to be reviewed at the county assistance office for coverage. Um, so you can't choose between CHIP or Medicaid for your child. Um, it's one or the other. Also important for us to remember, there is no EPSDT requirement for CHIP. Um, so think about a child who has a very complex health needs. When they apply for Medicaid, it's very important that they um, indicate that they have a disability so that they can be reviewed under PH95. Otherwise, they could get put into CHIP, um, which is really not going to be um, well serving their needs. There's a process to transfer from CHIP to PH95 for that exact reason, um, and I'm linked here on the slide to the Medical Assistance Eligi Eligibility Handbook, uh, Section 315.51, which talks about that process. All right, so how do, we, how do we apply for medical assistance in Pennsylvania? In general, there are three ways to apply. You can do it online, you can do it by phone, or you can use the paper application and either mail it or drop it off to the county assistance office. When someone applies using the paper application, they should send it by certified mail to the county assistance office, or they should drop it off in person at the county assistance office and ask for a time-stamped receipt. They should also keep a copy of the application form and never send any originals to the county assistance office. So here on the slide, I linked to one of the application forms, the PA600CH. Uh, this application form is the shortest of all of the applications, and it is intended specifically for children and pregnant women. Um, there's no wrong application. Any application is a good application. So if the person happens to pick up the longer PA600 application for benefits, they can apply using that as well. Um, they don't, in other words, a child doesn't have to use the specific child form. Sometimes it just makes sense to do that because it's shorter. The other hyperlink here on the slide is to the directory for county assistance offices. Most counties just have one designated county assistance office, but some of the larger counties like Philadelphia and Allegheny County outside Pittsburgh have um, district offices, so there's multiple. And the third way I mentioned to apply is online. Um, so this is through the state compass system. The web address is listed on the last slide. I always encourage clients to apply on compass if it's a possibility for them. Um, it's more secure in terms of, you know, getting a confirmation. So you submit the application and you've got an instant confirmation that it was received and you get a number assigned to your application. Um, on the paper side, sometimes things get lost at the county assistance office. It's unclear when it was ever submitted uh, and that's why we always say ask for a receipt or send by certified mail. 
You can apply for other benefits as well as Medicaid through Compass, so SNAP and LIHEAP and um, CASH and any other benefits. You can um, apply all at once for those, or you can just apply for health insurance benefits on Compass, and then the application is shorter. At the end of the Compass application, it's going to give the person a list of documents that are needed to follow up. Um, so for the most part, paper verification is still required for most eligibility factors that are listed on the application. That's true whether you're using the paper application, applying by phone or on Compass. Um, you have to submit pay stubs, proof of address, things like that. <clears throat> there is some data sharing with other government agencies like Social Security, um, but in general, it's expected that a client has to document and submit a paper verification for anything that they put on the application unless they're told otherwise. Um, the good thing about Compass, in some counties we know that you're able to upload information directly through Compass. That can go both ways. We've had it, we've heard that it can be pretty clunky. Um, we've used it here a few times and it's um, the system freezes or it doesn't upload the right way. So it's, it's available. I like to mention that you can upload directly through Compass, but you don't have to. You can apply through Compass, get your confirmation number, and then follow up by mail or in person with the verification that's asked for. It takes up to 30 days to get a decision on a Medicaid application once it's submitted, but there is a provision that allows the County Assistance Office to speed up that process in the case of a medical emergency. So here on the slide, I've linked to the language in the handbook that helps, um, that you can cite to when advocating that for, your, for that for your client. Um, and generally what we see is a letter from a doctor or even just some medical records showing the diagnosis and um, us making the argument to a supervisor or an ombudsman explaining, you know, this child has no insurance coverage right now, needs Medicaid to start receiving services that are time sensitive, please speed it up and make a decision faster than 30 days. You can also get retroactive coverage for up to three months prior to the date of application, um, which is kind of unique to Medicaid. This is helpful if there is a situation where somebody was uninsured and maybe they incurred some medical bills in that period. As long as they apply uh, in enough time to capture those bills in the three-month retroactive period and they can show that they were eligible during that period, then Medicaid can be billed for that service. Um, one final note about the application. We're going to get into notice and appeal later, um, but individuals are entitled to a written notice of the decision on their benefits. So if you're looking out in the mail and it's been more than 30 days and no decision has been made, there are some provisions in the eligibility handbook that support that 30-day window. You can reach out to the county and say, hey, my client has not received a notice yet. What's going on? Um, nine times out of 10, it's just sitting somewhere at the county assistance office and it needs processing. Um, so that extra push is really invaluable. All right, I'm just going to cover this quickly, uh, using medical assistance benefits after you're approved. The main takeaway here is individuals are going to get a welcome packet and an approval letter that comes with an access card. It's going to be yellow if Medicaid is their only benefit, or it's that greenish-blue card if they also receive um, cash or food stamps. During that newly eligible period, 
usually a couple weeks, sometimes a little over a month, the access card acts as their temporary insurance card until they select and enroll into a managed care plan. The managed care plan is going to act sort of like an HMO for the coverage. Um, it's, going to get, it's going to replace the access card, in other words. So depending on where in the state the client lives, they have a choice of plans in their zone. Um, I'll show you the map on the next slide that shows the different zones and the plans that are available in each. Um, and for the most part, everyone is required to enroll into a managed care plan. There is one exception for kids who are in the HIP program, which stands for Health Insurance Premium Payment Program. Uh, we don't want to get in the weeds with HIP today, but just note that if you're meeting with a client and they say their child only has the access card or they've only ever had the access card, that can make sense. And that can be because the child is in HIP. Um, those kids are exempt from enrollment in managed care, and they just stay in fee-for-service and use that access card as their insurance card for the whole time they're on Medicaid. It's important to actively pick a plan, um, especially for kids who need to see certain doctors or go to certain hospitals for care. Um, the main consideration really is the doctor networks and the hospital and provider networks for each plan. All the plans cover the same benefit package, and they have to do that. <clears throat> All right. Um, so here's the map I mentioned with the, the health choices zones. These are the managed care zones for Pennsylvania, um, and the plans listed underneath are available in each of the, um, the zones here. So in the southeast, we have um, Southeast Zone has Aetna, Health Partners, Keystone, and United. Um, out in the Pittsburgh area, there's different plans. So um, it, it differs based on where you live. But there is a choice within each plan, and you can change the plan at any time. So if a child enrolls in a plan, not happy with it, uh, they can change at any time, and it's usually effective the first day of the following month, as long as they make the selection by the 15th of that month. And the final note here, um, I jumped ahead. There's a website called enrollnow.net, and families can go there to compare the plans, enroll or change their plan, select a PCP for their child. Um, lots of good information on enrollnow.net, and that information is going to come in the welcome packet too as well. It's going to urge people to go online or call to pick a plan. Okay, so the final section, notice and appeal rights. We're back to those legal underpinnings um, and what makes Medicaid such a strong uh, program for kids and for anyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I mentioned throughout the presentation the legal protections, EPSTT and medical necessity. In addition, uh, the other essential part of the legal protections for Medicaid is due process rights. And those were set forth beginning with the 1970 case um, Goldberg versus Kelly. The rights to do, of, to do process for public benefits are now incorporated into federal and state Medicaid laws and policy, um, and they've been interpreted clearly to apply to Medicaid benefits by a series of courts since Goldberg. So essentially, in Goldberg in 1970, the Supreme Court of the United States held that recipients of certain public benefits are entitled to procedural due process anytime their benefits are at risk. And again, that was later interpreted to mean Medicaid benefits as well. This applies in both the eligibility context, so the application, and in the service context. 
So when a child already has the insurance card and their doctor is requesting a service, they're entitled to due process protections uh, in both of those arenas. In practice, this is really a two-fold analysis uh, stemming from Goldberg and then the subsequent case law and policy. First is that individuals are entitled to adequate notice of a decision regarding their benefits. And second is that they have to be given a reasonable opportunity to be heard or to have a hearing. So let's talk about each of those, starting with notice. The notice that an individual receives must be adequate. It has to have certain information in it. It has to state the basis for the action, and generally that means um, the citation to the law that supports the action, and then an application of their situation to that standard. <clears throat> when coverage is being reduced or terminated, it has to set forth in the notice, um, first, excuse me, the, the notice has to be sent in advance of the effective date of the termination of the benefits. Um, and the notice has to set forth information to show the individual how they can appeal to keep their benefits in place while the appeal is going on. So we sometimes call this aid paid pending or continued benefits pending appeal. Essentially, again, what it means is if you appeal timely within these timeframes, I'm going to mention in a minute, existing benefits remain the same. And that is true for eligibility and for services, remember. So the appeal deadlines are very short. You have to appeal within 10 days from the notice mail date of a service denial in order to keep it on while the appeal is pending. And you have to appeal within 15 days from the notice mail date for an eligibility denial. So I just want to make an important note here. Clients are often unaware of the right to continued benefits pending the appeal. The notices are not well written and they give confusing information about the deadlines. And they're going to list both deadlines. They're going to say there's 10 days to appeal for continued benefits or otherwise there's 30 days to appeal. But what does that mean? Clients are never clear on what that means. Um, <clears throat> so just remember there's a longer appeal deadline that's available if continued benefits are not being sought. Um, it's 30 days for eligibility determinations and up to 120 days for service denials, um, sometimes a bit shorter. But if a client wants to keep their current benefits or their current services, they have a right to aid paid pending as long as they appeal within those deadlines. The only time that wouldn't apply on the service side is for a one-time item. The example would be like a, a piece of durable medical equipment, like a wheelchair. <clears throat> the second component uh, of due process that stems, again, from Goldberg is the hearing. So they have to have a, a reasonable or a meaningful opportunity to be heard. And that hearing has to give the individual um, certain protections. They have to be allowed to confront and cross-examine the witnesses and the evidence presented against them. And that means the agency's decision. They have to be, be allowed to um, hear about the decision and confront it and cross-examine any witnesses. And the hearing also has to take place before a neutral or impartial decision maker. So what does that mean in terms of the forum? The hearing forum is going to differ based on um, the type of appeal that somebody is pursuing, meaning whether they have, whether they're appealing an eligibility determination or a service denial. Um, and it's also going to depend what kind of coverage they have for Medicaid. So think back to the managed care versus fee-for-service uh, slide that I talked about. 
So for individuals who are denied Medicaid eligibility, their application, in other words, is denied, their appeal avenue is a fair hearing with an administrative law judge from the Department of Human Services. For individuals who are in fee-for-service, so think about those kids in HIP, if they're denied a service by Medicaid, their appeal avenue is also a hearing with an administrative law judge from DHS. And for individuals who are in a managed care plan who are denied services, um, they have an additional appeal avenue available to them. First, they're able to go to a grievance, which is an informal review internally with their managed care plan, basically to dispute the managed care plan's decision. Um, not exactly impartial, but there are some protections in place to make it more so. And then once the grievance is exhausted, they can proceed to a fair hearing the same kind of fair hearing we're talking about in the other context before an administrative law judge with the Department of Human Services. In prior to um, 2018, when the managed care federal regulation changes went into effect, uh, clients did not have to exhaust the grievance before they went to a fair hearing for a service denial. Um, now they do. So that is a major change that happened last year. Some other relevant changes that came about with the managed care regs. Uh, there used to be two internal grievance levels, a first and a second level grievance. Now there's only one. And the regs also changed some time frames for filing appeals and for deadlines for decisions. That, of course, is not an exhaustive overview of the managed care changes from last year, but as it applies to grievances and uh, filing appeals for Medicaid, uh, that's, those are the main factors to note. So we don't want to get into the substance of appeals today, of course. Um, you know, with the allotted time, we certainly don't have the opportunity to do that. And the way that you prepare for an appeal really differs based on what's at issue. So the type of service is going to, is going to um, impact how you prepare for the appeal. And also the forum that you're in. So if we're talking about an eligibility denial, those are really ripe for settlement. Um, usually they can be resolved through informal advocacy, uh, through the county assistance office, reaching out to an ombudsman or a supervisor and explaining why basically the decision was wrong, uh, providing documentation that may have been lost or missing in the first place. Generally, those appeals can be settled um, without having to go to a hearing. Of course, the client should always still request the fair hearing when a service denial, I'm sorry, when an eligibility denial occurs, but just keep in mind that you can always try to settle those. Same is true for, for services, but it's just less ripe for settlement. It's harder to reach the managed care plans or the Office of Medical Assistance Programs for fee-for-service um, to talk about a settlement. It does sometimes happen, but generally you're going forward with the fair hearing or the grievance in those cases. An important piece of um, case law to be familiar with is a case known as Juris, or we now refer to it as the Juris Rule. It's spelled J-U-R-A-S, and it's codified in, 270, in 55 PA code 275.5, which is where the fair hearing regs are. And jurors basically says that you can submit new information to establish eligibility or to establish medical necessity at the hearing, even if it wasn't submitted prior. Um, so at the hearing, the issue is not just were you eligible at the point of the application or the, or the point of the request for the service, the issue is ongoing. Are, are you eligible now and can you show that you are eligible? <clears throat> so the takeaways here, 
remember due process and EPSDT. Do not take no for an answer. That's what I tell my clients. Um, always appeal and do it early. There is really broad coverage for children. Um, we can make an argument about medical necessity, assuming we have the doctor's support and medical records backing it up, but we can make those medical necessity arguments at the appeal um, for almost any service. And with managed care plans, of course, managing these benefits for kids, they're under cost constraints, expensive services are often the first to be on the chopping block. Um, and of course, we don't want the bottom line of an insurance plan to dictate um, what EPSDT has set forth, um, which is the importance of child health and maintaining that early on in life. Some additional resources. Um, we're wrapping up here, so I'm going to pause and see if there are any questions. But here are um, some hyperlinks to additional resources that I've mentioned here and there throughout the presentation and also for further reading um, on some of this information. We have a lot more resources on our website, phlp.org, um, and certainly any um, questions or if there's a particular resource you're looking for to read through or to share with clients, you can reach out to me or to my organization through the helpline. All right, so I'm going to turn to Kelly. Do you see any questions coming in, Kelly? I don't see any questions. If you have any questions you'd like to ask, please type them in the chat box now and send them. Um, I'm going to launch right now the second poll for CLE credit. If you're Great. an attorney um, who has participated in this webinar, the box should be on your screen right now, so please respond to it. And let me just take one more look. Oh, I think you must have answered everything. Nobody has any questions. <laughs> I either answered all the questions or I created too many. <laughs> um, well, I really appreciate everyone's time today, of course, and thank you, Kelly and Plan, again, for hosting our webinar today. Um, my contact information is here on the slide. Feel free to reach out to me or to call our helpline. Um, and just a quick note, in the handouts, there's a flyer about our helpline and basically about the Health Law Project and what we do and how we can help. Um, so the helpline is our client intake avenue. Uh, it's open Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. But again, feel free to reach out to me directly if you have a question or need some assistance. Wonderful. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so much, everyone. Have a great day.